Well, welcome to chapter 2 of Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach. If you want to grab your Bible, open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're now moving into our eighth week, and we're getting to our second chapter here. And if this is your first day with us, if you're here for the first time, could you just raise your hand right now? Let's clap for everybody who's got their hand up. Let's welcome them. Hey, it is great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming. We want to be a family here at this church, and so it's great to have you uh, here in under our Easy Ups. I would say at our home, but this is all we got right now is under our Easy Ups, and so it's great to have you here. I grew up in the Blakey family. If we haven't met, my name is Bobby, and I had a brother named Bill and another brother named Ben. My dad's name was Bruce, and my mom's name was Berta. We were one of those families, all right? Every pet had to start with a B, Boomer, Buster, Buddy. We had them all. Uh, first address I ever remembered was Brookside Lane. That's where we lived. And uh, we were the Blakeys, and it was good growing up as a Blakey because uh, we were one of those families where, you know, dad and mom actually loved each other. And we actually had family meals together, and we would quote movie lines and laugh at each other and enjoy being in each other's presence and one day we were at dinner, and I was eating my peas, and that always took a while, and we were talking there. And uh, my brother Bill, the middle brother, he started to talk about how there were these guys that were kind of chasing him and trying to beat him up at school. And at that time, I went to the same elementary school as my brother Bill, and he's like, yeah, there's these guys. They chase me every day at lunch. I call them the electrocuting 11 because there's 11 guys coming after me. And I was like, are we going to sit here and listen to this nonsense at the dinner table? There are not 11 guys chasing you at school. This is ridiculous. I go to school. I don't see it. Well, that same week, there was like some funky schedule going on. So even though I was older than Bill, I ended up having lunch at the same time as him. And I'm sitting there with my buddies, you know, and we're eating our lunch bags there. We're getting our food out. We're eating. And I see my brother Bill just taking off across the playground. I mean, he's going full speed, pumping arms. And I look, and it's like one, two, three, four, five. There's 11 guys chasing my brother. And I'm like, that's my brother, man. You don't mess with him. And I grab my buddy, this big, you know, sixth grader, black belt, going to be future all-American lineman. And I'm like, we got to go save my brother. And we run over there across the playground. And by the time we get there, the electrocuting 11 have caught my brother. They're on top of him. He's at the bottom of a group of guys in a dog pile. And here comes my big friend. And he just starts grabbing little kids and throwing them up in the air off of my brother and I get in there underneath the crew and I grab him and I'm like this is my brother you don't mess with him you know he's my blood it's like what's up I'm tough look at me I'm the big bro you know that's how I'm acting and then my brother he like dusts himself off and he looks at the guys and he's like that's the last time you'll ever catch me and he takes off running across the playground and I'm like dude you are on your own you know what I mean but that idea of being a brother, that idea that appealed to me in my heart that day of like, that's my brother. You don't mess with him. I've got his back. That's actually how we're supposed to think about one another here at this church. I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, the way that it refers to a group like us more than any other way is not Christian. It's not disciple. The way that it talks about a group like this is brothers. That's the main way that it refers to us. 
Look, just look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we're getting into starting here this morning. Just look at the first verse. Look at how Paul addresses the crowd. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Hey, guys, we have this thing in common. We're kind of all in the same family. I'm going to refer to you as brothers. I mean, look down at verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And on and on it goes. He calls this group in this one letter, he refers to them as brothers 19 times. In the New Testament, if you add every reference to Christians as brothers, it's over 300 family references in the New Testament. He's not just throwing out a word here. There's meaning behind it. He's saying we have something in common. I mean, everybody here, we can all naturally relate to what I'm saying right now. We have that family feeling. That you're my brother, you're my sister, we came from the same mom, we came from the same dad. That that immediately makes us blood, it makes us tight, it makes us united. That's We understand that concept of family very naturally. And what I want to teach you today, what 1 Thessalonians 2 is going to be all about, is that we're supposed to have that concept of family here at our new church. That's the kind of relationship we're supposed to pursue with one another. That you would look at the other men here, if you're a guy, or that you would look at the other women here, if you're a woman, and you would say, hey, these are my brothers, or these are my sisters, this is my family. That's how we're supposed to think about it. And and that's going to be a theme that we're going to see over the next few weeks. And and so I just want to make sure that everybody sees the family connection we have in Jesus Christ. Because everybody here who's a Christian has had the same conversation with God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. I just want to review what gets us into this family, how you become a part of the family of God. Everybody here, we have the same relationship with God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've had this conversation that God initiates here in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Let me just start with you here in the Old Testament. And this is a great verse. If you're not familiar with it, here's This verse is like God is speaking straight to you here this morning. And God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God's saying, hey, I want to, let's let's just kind of think this through. I'm offering you a deal. I want to put something on the table, and you let me know what you think about it. Right now, as you come before me, I'm a God. I live in heaven. I'm perfect. I'm holy. You're down there on earth. You have sin in your life. You have fallen short of my perfection. So here we are. We're sitting at the table. You've got a crimson stain. Here's what I'm offering you. White as snow. Okay? You know that you're guilty. You've got this conviction of sin in your life. Hey, here's what I'm really willing to offer you. 100% forgiveness. We'll wipe the slate clean. That'll be all behind us. See, everybody here who's a Christian, you've had this conversation with God, have you not? Where you came before him and you were willing to admit to God that I have fallen short of your standard. In fact, I could never live up 
to the holiness that you have in heaven. And so, God, I want you to forgive me. Please forgive me for that sin. Now, once you become convicted of your sin, once you identify yourself as a sinner, there's kind of two things you can do. One thing you can do is you can do what God's saying here is admit your crimson stain and come to him and beg for mercy and forgiveness. Or you can do what a lot of people do is you can say, oh, I got this crimson stain. Let me just kind of scrub that out a little bit. All right, I don't know if you guys are working on laundry. I'm not an expert in the field of laundry, but I am an expert in getting clothes dirty. Anybody else ever have that problem? Right? Like you're there and you're having lunch and it's the burger you want and here's your fries. And, you know, you're bringing your fry up to your mouth and what happens? The ketchup's now on your favorite shirt. And let's get real. That was your favorite shirt. Like you looked good in that shirt. Like if you're somebody like me, that doesn't happen with every shirt. You know what I mean? Like today was a good day. And, it, and, and now I got ketchup on this shirt. And so you go to the laundry, and what do you do? You get that stain remover stuff, and you start scrubbing. And you almost start to believe, like, if I scrub a little bit harder, see, I'll get that stain out. Do you realize how many people are doing that with their lives? Do you realize how many people know they're guilty before God, and they think, if I just try a little harder, if I just do a little better, if I just finally stop doing that thing that I know I shouldn't be doing, and this week I have a good week, then all of a sudden God and I will be okay. That's not the deal that he puts on the table here. He says there's only one way to do this. You admit your crimson stain, and when you confess your sin, when you turn from your sin, I wipe it completely clean. That's how it works. Isaiah 64, 6 is a reference you could write down. It says, our good works are like filthy rags, right? Like trying to wash your car with a rag that's already soiled and dirty. It's not going to get the car clean. That's what we are if we just try to, if you're coming to church this morning and you're trying to be a better person, you're trying to do the right thing, that's not the deal that God puts on the table. God puts, you admit defeat, you admit you're not a good person, and then I will change you from the inside out, man. You've got this dark stain, here's what I want, white as snow, okay? White as snow, that's what God's offering. And there's only one thing that can change your heart from, from crimson stain to white like snow. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's look at this one thing. This is what everybody who's a Christian here has in common. 1 Peter chapter 1, this is, this is what washes us from our sins and makes us clean and acceptable before God. It says here in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18, look at it with me, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18, it says, knowing that you were ransomed, you were purchased, you were paid for from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. Nobody bought you with things like silver or gold. Here's what it bought your salvation. Here's what purchased your soul. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, when you come to God with your crimson stain and he washes you as white as snow, there's only one thing that can clean you, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood will wash your sins away. Can I get an amen from anybody here this morning? Oh, I hear my brothers and sisters have showed up here this morning. See? What makes you a brother or sister with somebody? You have the same parents. You feel like you come from the same blood. We are the same exact way, my friends. 
If you were a Christian, let me tell you how you got there. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Same blood that washed me, washed you. Guess what that makes us? Blood brothers or sisters in Jesus Christ. We're family, see? We were born again with the same blood. In fact, in this passage, look back up at verse 17. Look what it says. Before it gets to the blood that saved you, look at the relationship you have with God. And if you call on him as, what does it say there? If you call on him as what? Father, see, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In fact, if you go up even further back to verse 14, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do You see what's happening here? You have a relationship with God. You, you pray to him. You say, oh, father in heaven. And how did you get into that relationship with God? Through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, you and I have the same dad. And we were purchased with the same blood. And I want to suggest to you that the blood of Jesus Christ is a stronger bond that two people can have than any other relationship you could ever have here in this world. Okay? Let's get this down for point number one. If you're taking notes, I want you to see that we are all blood relatives in Christ. See that we are all blood relatives in Christ. That's what the Bible means when it says brothers. It's very theological. The blood of Jesus purchased you. It purchased me. And we're all now in this together. That, that's the idea here. That you and I could be a family. Now, on my way here to church this morning... I saw a lot of things that people were doing. I saw people were at the baseball field. A lot of people at the baseball field. Now, if you have baseball in common with somebody, right, can you have a, a good time? And can you get to know somebody? Yeah, you're on a baseball team with somebody? You can be a good friend. I also drove by the swap meet this morning. And Everybody else drive by the swap meet this morning? That's a happening place, right? Uh, shopping, if you go shopping with people, can that unite you together, right? Any ladies ever go shopping, ever go on shopping trips, feel close to people? We spent money together, we went into debt together, now we're tight, right? <laughs> ever had that happen? See, those are the things that, that the world looks to to start relationships. I'm saying you've got a better relationship with somebody here that you've never met than somebody you play baseball with or shop with. Because Jesus Christ, he died for you just like he died for them. And that defines your life and that defines their life. You could not even know each other right now. And by the end of today, if you started talking, you could feel closer than anybody you've ever been on a baseball team with. Than anybody ever went to work with. I mean, think about the things that usually unite people. We live in the same neighborhood. We work at the same place. Right? I mean, how much more important is it that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and for you, and we now have his blood in common. We're family here. And we got to start thinking like that. In fact, the Bible even wants to elevate your view of family that you would have with brothers and sisters at church to the level of your own blood family. Look at Luke chapter 8. Everybody turn to Luke chapter 8, and let's get a comment from Jesus Christ on what he thinks about the relationship of his people. The relationship that he has with his people. We have a father in heaven. And Jesus Christ even claims in the scripture to be our big brother. That's the intimate relationship that we have with God. And that's supposed to change the relationship we have with each other. Look what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 8 verse 19. Look at what happens here in the life of Jesus Christ. It says, then his mother and his brothers came to him. 
but they could not reach him because of the crowd. Now at this time, let's just give a little context. Jesus' mother and brothers, did they believe in Jesus Christ at, the, at this time? No, they did not. In fact, if you look at the other Gospels and how it describes this story, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that they thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he was going crazy because he was always with the people doing miracles and teaching. In fact, he wasn't even stopping to eat a meal. And his mom and his brothers were like, this, are, he's gone crazy. He's not even taking care of himself. He's not even eating. He's at this house. He's teaching people. We're going to go talk to him. That's the context here. But they can't even get in to talk to him because there's so many people there with Jesus Christ. And so somebody shouts in, look at Luke 8 verse 20, and he was told, somebody shouts, Hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. And Jesus, he flips the script right here in verse 21, but he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What? That's not what you would think he would say. I mean, this is the perfect son. This is the, the son who always honored his mother and she treasured all these things up in her heart. And now she shows up with his bros and his first reaction is, hey, do you hear the word of God and do you do it? Are you a real Christian? Has the power of God's word changed your life? Then you're my mother. Then you're my brothers. That's what Jesus wants to say. He wants to elevate the relationships that we would have here at church to the level of family blood relationships. That's intimate. That's, uh, let's just get real, my friends. That's not how a lot of people are going to church today. A lot of people, are they going to church and saying, this is my family? I love these people. I got the back of these people. I die for these people. We're blood here. Or are they like kind of keeping it on the surface? I come into church. I go out. Yeah, I kind of know people. What kind of Christianity is popular today? See? Here's the idea. If you, if you do what God says, if you're living your life as a Christian person, you're one of Jesus' mother or brothers, he says. You're a part of the family. Go to Proverbs chapter 18. Turn with me. to Let's go one more passage on this idea to Proverbs chapter 18. See, even at church, we can say, okay, I guess theologically we're all family here. So, yeah, I'll, I'll call each other brother. You know, we do that here at church. We say, hey, brother, how you doing? And we, we talk like that. But, but I'm hoping here at this church we're going to have closer relationships uh, that we are really going to get to where it feels like I genuinely believe that the other people here at this church, when I call them brother, I'm not just saying something spiritual. No, that's actually how I feel about the other men here in my heart. And when I call that woman sister, it's because we're going through life together. We're sharing our faith together. We're striving side by side for the gospel together. Like we could get to where we don't just say brother because that's a word in the Bible and we know that's kind of true. We could say brother because that's how I feel in my heart about you. And I know we have that kind of relationship. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? A church that's surfacy and you see each other on Sunday and everything's smiling and, and kind of fake? Or do you want to be a part of a church where people really get to know each other? What kind of a group do you want to be a part of? Thank you for answering that question. I appreciate that. That, that was the right answer. The real, the real church. Here's, here's the difference. Proverbs 18, 24. Here's just a nugget of wisdom to think about here from the wisest man on planet Earth, Solomon. He writes this. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You want to have a church where you kind of know a bunch of people? And it stays on the surface? Or do you want to become such good friends with each other here? 
that you start to say things like, you know, my church, it's really actually my family. In fact, sometimes I even hear people say stuff like, I'm actually closer with the people at church than I am with my own brothers and sisters and father and mother. Because we have something in common in Christ that I don't have in common with them. You know, Pastor Mike, he's the pastor of Compass Bible Church down in Aliso Viejo that sent us out here to start this church. And one day he said something that really got my attention. He said, I'm tired of people at church being friendly. People at church shouldn't be friendly. And I was like, what are you saying? Where are you going with this? And he said, people at church shouldn't be friendly. They should be friends. So much stuff that happens at church in the name of Jesus Christ is fake and it's on the surface. And I want to challenge our church to get deeper than that. And to put yourself outside of your comfort zone and to say, no, I'm really going to start acting like the people here at this church. I'm going to try to get to know them as if they were my own brother or sister. That's what I want. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It gets, even, it gets even more intimate than that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It doesn't just say this word brothers to get us into the idea of spiritual family. It's going to get even further with this analogy. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. And I don't know if you're taking notes here. What I want to do is just give us an introduction today to this big concept of the church as a family. So if you can see on your notes, we've got the whole passage that we're looking at. And there's three different spots that we've got in bold. Three different passages that we're going to look at briefly. And then we're going to come back and go through them more thoroughly later. But I just want to get the big picture here this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, start with me in verse 7. Now this is Paul a man, he's actually writing on behalf of himself, Silas, and Timothy. And he says, but we were gentle among you. Describing his relationship with the Thessalonians. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, so in love with you, so longing for you, so passionate for you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. We didn't just give you the, the scripture information. No, we also shared with you our own selves, our own souls, our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. Okay, now, now I'm a man. And I, I try to have close relationships. I definitely have guys here that I would call brothers. I've even had people where I've referred to almost younger men where I was almost a father figure to them. But I have never once referred to myself as a mother in front of anybody, all right? Not one time, okay? I mean, you want to talk about the most intimate way that you could describe how you care about somebody. Let's compare it to a mother with her newborn nursing child. See? Now, I have absolutely no experience in that department, but I've been blessed to witness that relationship three different times at our house. And there, I, I mean, that is intimate. When you talk about a mom and her love for her baby, can I get an amen from any of the women here? Yeah, yeah, all right, there we go. I mean, do you realize what a big deal it is in a woman's life when she's going to have a baby? The process, I mean, you get, the, the Lord has given you plenty of time to think about this in the way that he has designed pregnancy, right? And so what do we do? We do showers. We go and have a baby registry, right? We do showers where everybody gives you all kinds of gifts, I mean, the room is decorated before the baby's ever showing up, and it's the best-looking room in the house. Have you noticed that? Right? 
I mean, it, it's just like got a theme and it's got this elaborate decoration. I mean, we had someone come before our first child. We had someone come and paint the Winnie the Pooh storybook world all over the wall. You know what I mean? And we would just sit in there and be like, this is going to be so precious, right? Fast forward a few kids and it's like, oh, we'll put them over here. You know what I, you know what I mean? Right? But I mean, the, the, when that baby is born, right? And you even, like, you even put that baby right there on, on the mother. We've had some babies born recently here in the life of our church. In fact, we have the best cry room in Orange County. Do you guys see what we got? Let's say hi to our new families out there. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We got Ford. We got Hunter here. Very exciting stuff that, that, that's going on at our church. And, and Dustin, he was talking about the incubator, right? You, the incubator is a way that you're trying to make it feel like mom. It's like technology's version to try to make it feel like what it feels like when the baby goes on mom. That's what it is. That warmth, see? That care of mom cradling the baby to herself. That's what he's talking about here. You know, this is Orange County. This is the year 2014, and I'm a man. That's way too much emotion. That's way too much intimacy for our culture, for how, what makes us comfortable. For me to start saying that I would feel about the people here at this church like a mother cradling her newborn baby towards her breast, like that's how intimate the relationship would get here at this church, that's what he's talking about. That's the analogy the man, Paul, wants to use. I am so affectionately desirous of you. I love you, is what he's saying. I mean, can you honestly say, well, I know we're just getting started and we're just getting to know each other, but maybe at the church you were at before, if, if you're just diving in with us and this is your first church, can you honestly say that you're trying to love the people here? Is that your goal? Is that your end game here? To get to know people that will become so close they could hurt you, you would feel bad for them if something ha happened in their life that hurt them, you would take their pain. If they were going through a hard time, you would bear their burden like everything a mom wants to do for a baby. Is that what we're signing up for here at church? Because that's what the example is that we're looking at from the scripture. I'm so affectionately desirous of you, like a mother with her newborn babe. Point number two, let's put it down like this. We need to love the new lives God gives to us. We need to love the new lives that God gives to us. See, we got people praying here at this church. We got a whole team of people that are praying all the time for what God's going to do here at this church. And here's the kind of things we're praying for. We're praying that new people will show up every single Sunday. So if you raised your hand, this is your first time, you might not realize this, but people have already been praying for you. And we're praying even more than just that people will come. We want to see people get washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to see people get cleansed from that crimson stain and have a new relationship where they can call God Father and they can be blood brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Is anybody here praying that people will get saved here at this church? Anybody praying that at all? Okay. We're praying that. Now here's what you're saying when you pray that though. That means if you're asking for God to give us new life, Bring new people into our church. Save people that come to our church. Make them new creations in Jesus Christ. Make them born again. If you're praying that, then here's what you better be able to do. You better be ready to love those people when God gives them that life. You better be able to welcome those people and greet them in the name of Jesus Christ when God brings them here to the church. 
Sometimes I've seen people get rallied up and fired up and we're going to pray for God to save. And then you know what he does? He saves people and then guess what I see? That new saved person sitting all by themselves at church. It's like, where's the motherly love? Where's the person that's treating this person like a new baby and they're going to care for them and they're going to work with them? So we got to write down a word here under point number two. We got to write down this word, hospitality. See, we don't know what this word means anymore hospitality. We think that hospitality today means that we're having donuts from the donuttery uh, after the service. That's what we think, right? Like one, one week in our water over there, we got, you know, this church, we go all out, we give free water away every Sunday, right? And one week in our water, there was cucumber and, and oranges and lemons in the water. Did anybody see that? And it was like, what great hospitality here at this church. That's what we think it means, right? We think, oh, it feels like a day spa. Wow, you know? Hospitality has nothing to do with food. It has nothing to do with the feng shui of your living room when you have people over. In the scripture, hospitality means one thing, to love strangers. That's what hospitality means. It means to love strangers. It means you walk through, the not the door of our church, you walk through the gates of our church, right? You walk through the gates of our church, and I treat you like you're my brother, like you're my sister. I don't know you, but I love you like you're one of my people. That's what hospitality means. And so I'm going to encourage you, keep praying God will bring more people here at our church. we got plenty of room for them to sit. Keep praying God will bring the people. But then maybe get here a little bit early and get ready to stick your hand out and get to know these people, to love them. Man, that mother, she loves that new baby, that new life. Cradling it into her arms, holding it close to her. That's how we're supposed to treat each other here. And then let's say God does the miracle of not just bringing somebody to church. What if somebody today, after this sermon, says, I want to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I admit my sin, and I want to be cleansed from it. I want to be a part of the family of God that you're talking about. I mean, would that not be awesome if that happened here today? Okay, now, that person is a spiritual infant, okay? I mean, that could happen to somebody. They don't even know the Bible. They don't even know there's an Old and a New Testament, right? I mean, that person, they're going to need someone to come alongside them and nurture them, cherish them, probably talk with them on a daily basis, helping them figure out the Christian life. We've got this one-on-one discipleship program, Partners, where you meet at least once a week is the idea for 10 weeks, and you take them through the basics of the Christian faith. Like every new Christian needs that level of discipleship, that one-on-one relationship to help them grow. Who here is ready to disciple a new Christian? Because we can pray for all the new Christians we want, but God, if he's a good father, would only bring them somewhere where we're actually going to take care of his kids, see. So when I pray that God will save people, what I've got to be ready to say behind that is I will work with the person that you save, and I will encourage them, and I will show them what it means to be a Christian by my example. I will teach them what it means to be a Christian from the Bible. I'm ready to give my life completely to another person that you will save. That's what you're saying. And now we see why a lot of times we pray for people to show up and we pray for people to get saved and then we're kind of wondering, hey, I didn't really see it happen like it was hoping. Well, here's the problem. We're not ready to love those people. And why would God give us people if we're not ready to love them? And when, when somebody's born into a family, one thing that happens sometimes when a, when a, kid, is, when a kid is born, the older brother or sister starts to resent 
the new kid. Anybody, anybody ever experienced that in a family? You don't need to raise your hand if you, you experience that, right? But I hear about that happening. Isn't that sad? As a parent, when one of your kids starts to not treat one of your other kids well, how does that feel for you, Dad? Right? One of your kids, your older child is ignoring your younger child. How does that make you feel, Dad? That's how God feels when we don't take care of the new people that he brings to our church and the new Christians that he's saving all around us. we got to love them like a mother loves her children. Go to John 13. I mean, love is such an important thing that we need to talk about. Our love for one another. In John 13, if we're going to start talking about loving one another, John 13 is where we want to go. John 13, look at verse 34. Here's what Jesus says. Hopefully, if you've gone to church for a while, you're familiar with this passage. If you're new to church, this is great because you maybe haven't had bad experiences and you can see what the church is supposed to be right here in these two verses. John chapter 13, look at verse 34. Look what it says right here. It says, a new commandment I give to you. This is Jesus talking on the night before he died. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people everywhere in the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, hey, I want to tell you something new. Love one another. Now, that doesn't sound very new. In fact, that was an old commandment. You could write down, if you're taking notes, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I don't know if you think of Leviticus as the love book of the Bible, but the first place that you're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So this was a very old commandment. So why does Jesus say, I want to give you a new commandment? Well, here's what's new about it. Now you're supposed to do it like I did it for you. See, Now I've given you an example. Now there's been a demonstration of love. And here in John 13, if you know the context, Jesus, before he said this, he washed the disciples' feet. Okay, now they didn't have cars, and they didn't have Nikes. They were were wearing sandals, and they were walking on dirt everywhere. And so it was customary when they would come into a room, like the upper room, where they were going to have this big dinner the night before Jesus died. It was customary there would be a servant to wash everybody's feet, because the way that they ate back in the day is they ate lying down. They reclined. And so your feet might be in some other dude's face. And so it was very important that everybody's feet would be clean if dinner was going to be a pleasant experience. And so there's supposed to be a servant washing everybody's feet. But in this room, there was no servant. And so who gets down on his hands and knees and gets with the grimy toes, warts and all, of the disciples? See, Jesus Christ. He doesn't act like, well, you guys are here to serve me. In fact, which one of you is the newest disciple? See, the disciples, they were always trying to get this like ladder of who was the greatest. And they were always trying to rank themselves. And they were always trying to figure that out. Here's what Jesus says. No, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to wash your feet. And we know even better than these guys, the demonstration of Jesus Christ. No, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take your sin on my shoulders and pay your punishment for your sin so that you could be forgiven. That's the love of Jesus Christ. Now he says, here's how you can know if you're a Christian. You're going to love other people like I've loved you. So who are you passing on the love of Jesus to? 
Who are you treating like that person is more important than myself? That I would die for that person. That I would show up and do grimy work to serve that person. Who can you say that you love? Now I, get, I bet the answer that you're saying is you love your who? Who do you love? Your family. Your spouse. Your kids. But here's the thing about Jesus Christ. He says you're going to love more people than your natural family. You're going to love my family. And that's how people are going to see that there's something different about this group of people right here is that we don't just love our own. We love those who belong to Jesus Christ. We love one another. Are you going to be a part of sharing that love here at this church? We really need you to. We need people who are going to show up here on Sunday and talk to each other throughout the week and put other people as more important than yourself and really learn how to love each other. I want to be a part of a church like that. Do you want to be a part of a church like that? Best way to be a part of a church like that is to be a person like that, see? Where you're going to love other people as more important than yourself. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about our church. I mean, the first seven weeks, God's already answered so many prayers. He's already brought some of you to be a part of this family. God's already doing some great things. I can't wait to see what God is going to do. I'm hoping someday God's going to put us in a building. I'm hoping he's going to keep growing people that will come. Most of all, I can't wait to see people God's going to save and lives that are going to change. I'm pumped. I got big hopes. I got big dreams for what God's going to do here at our church. But we just got to start with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If God does amazing things at our church, but we don't have love, then it's like nothing has happened. See? Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and I can impress you with all my words, but I have not love, well, I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just like a drum sound, Right? I mean, I'm, I'm obnoxious. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers, I'll tell you amazing things from God and understand all mysteries and knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, do you understand what that's saying? If someone gave away everything that they had, we would think, what an amazing person. If someone gave up their body to be burned, if someone here was a martyr for Christ, we would all say, that person was my hero. That's amazing. Look at their faith. And it says here, if you do something without love, then it's like you've done nothing at all. Even if you did the greatest thing that you could think of, give it all away. Die for Christ. If it's not out of a heart of love for your heavenly Father who saved you and out of love for his other people that he has saved, then it's like you've done nothing. So we can come here and we can talk about the Bible and we can feel spiritual and we can go to our small groups and we can talk more about the Bible and show other people how spiritual we are. We can set up, we can tear down, we can go evangelize, we can do it all. But if we don't love each other, then it doesn't mean anything to God. We got one thing that we got to make sure we get right at this church. We have to love each other. Our love for God overflows to I care about you. And there's more. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The analogy is, is not done. One more thing we got to see here this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Hopefully you're seeing the importance of love here at our church. 
But then he gets even deeper into the family analogy. And he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, For you know, and remember, he's always appealing to this relationship that they have, this experience that they've shared. You know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, now we've got the whole family here at the table of 1 Thessalonians 2. We started out as brothers, then all of a sudden, uh, he was talking like he was their mother, and now he says, and I was also like a father to you, see? I was the example to you. I was the one who instructed you, who counseled you. That's the idea here. If you look at verse 10, look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. You can see he's again talking about being an example. You are witnesses and God also. Everybody can see it. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And then you know I was like a father to you. See, I, I had the privilege of growing up with a dad that I, can re- that I can relate to in this passage. I don't know how many of you guys had a dad you could look at as an example, a dad who actually taught you the Bible. I'm finding less and less of those kind of dads in America today, but I was blessed to have a dad like that, a dad that I could look at, and he lived a certain way, that I could follow in his steps, and he would take me aside, and he would... Uh, talk to me. In fact, if you grew up in the Blakey house, there was not one day in the Blakey house where dad did not say, all right, family, let's get together. And the Bible was not opened and read and someone did not pray in our house. Oh, you think, well, maybe you didn't do it on somebody's birthday. No, if it was a birthday, we took extra time for the Bible. Maybe you missed it on Christmas and you went straight to the presents. No, if it was Christmas, dad had someone in the family prepare a sermon to preach to the rest of the family. That's how it was at the Blakey house. Like, we're going to die on one hill. We're going to do one thing here at this house. We're going to, if I'm the dad of this house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to talk about what he says in the Bible. And we're going to do what he says in the Bible. That's how it worked. There was really no other option for me growing up than to do what dad was telling me to do. It was the best possible way that you could grow up. And I'm really concerned. We're using the family analogy. The scripture's using the family analogy for how we're supposed to love one another here at church. I'm so concerned that we don't even know what a family is anymore in America. That next Sunday, we're going to leave 1 Thessalonians 2. And we're going to take a whole Sunday just to look at God's picture of the family. Because I think we don't want to assume that anybody knows who a dad is or who a mom is or what kids are supposed to do. So we're going to go over the whole thing together next Sunday. Does that sound like a good idea to everybody we need to review what a family is because when you do family like God says to do family guess what you end up with a happy family when you do family like the world says guess what you end up with divorce you end up with kids who can't wait to get out from the parents house you end up with people who don't talk to each other oh yeah that's my dad I haven't talked to him for years is that a common story that's America And so we got to get back to what a family is. And dad is supposed to be this example. Dad is supposed to be the Bible teacher of the home, the pastor of the family who walks with his kids and tells them how to live. He takes what he's learned and he passes it on to the next generation. Let's get that down for point number three. You need to pass on what you know to the next generation. 
And I'm not preaching the family sermon yet here. Okay, that's next Sunday. No, he's saying in the church, he was like a father to them, instructing them, being an example to them. So here at church, you're supposed to take what you know about Jesus Christ and you're supposed to pass it on to children, to people who are younger in their faith than you, who know less than you. You're supposed to take it and you're supposed to pass it on. That should be a goal for everybody here. That you would be doing some kind of ministry at our church where you were passing on, not just setting up easy ups, although we need that kind of ministry, not just cutting the donuts, we need all of that, but to where you're doing a kind of ministry where you're talking with someone about your relationship with your Father in heaven and telling them how to have a relationship with their Father in heaven, where you're being a spiritual father figure to somebody. Like they're learning how to be a Christian by following you. Who, who, who on the day that Jesus Christ comes back and he gets all of his people together, who's going to say, I was discipled and they're going to put your name in on the end of it? Who's going to claim that you made them a disciple of Jesus Christ? That should be your goal. That you want to have that kind of investment in somebody else's life. And some of you guys are like, well, I, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I know enough right now to help somebody else. Well, this is a great time then to seek out an example for yourself and to really try to go to make sure that you are someone who's learning about Christ, who's living for Christ, someone that somebody else could follow. This is a time for you to really grow if you're not there yet. But the truth is, you know something about Jesus Christ more than somebody else, okay? Because it starts, it starts like with kids. You probably know more than some of the kids in our two, three, four-year-old room right now. You could sound really smart and biblically authoritative if you went in to our two, threes, and fours and started teaching the Bible, right? If we got the kindergartners and we sat you down, I would imagine you could blow their minds with a couple of fun facts from the Scripture, okay? Now, if you want to know my story, here's how I got started doing ministry. Kids' ministry. Good old vacation Bible school right? Just trying to get them to listen, which usually involved bribing them with candy, and then quickly throwing a Bible verse on the end of it. Anybody else ever done that before? That's how I got started. Next thing you know, they were saying, hey, we want you to teach the junior high. That was tough. That was tough. I came to my first junior high sermon I ever did. I came and I was like, guys, I'm going to blow your mind today. Look at what this says here. It actually says this in the Old Testament in five different places. Let's go look them up. And I'm like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Isn't that exciting, guys? Nobody cares. You know what I mean? And we still got 30 minutes left on the clock. Welcome to junior high ministry. You know what I mean? Then eventually somebody offered me a job full-time to do high school ministry and to preach to young people the Bible. So I started doing that, and the group started to grow, and all of a sudden I had all these college-age young people saying, hey, we need more Bible teaching, and I started running the college group too. Next thing you know, now I've been promoted, I guess, to adult level, and here we are talking here this morning. See? That's it. Just you find somebody where you can tell them something that they don't know, and you start doing it. Don't worry about being in the right spot. The Lord will get you to the right spot. You just start passing on what you know about Jesus Christ to somebody else. I mean, if you're a Christian, you at least know how to be a Christian, so you could pass on to a non-Christian the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? 
Everybody here should be a part of making disciples. Go to Philippians chapter 3 with me. Philippians chapter 3. Here's a, here's a great verse that we need. We need many father figures. We need many examples in our church. In fact, I would suggest to you that our church can only grow as much as however many good examples we have in our church. That's really how big our church can be. Is how many, how many men do we have that men can follow the example of? That's going to be the size of our church right there. And so Philippians 3 verse 17 puts it like this. It says, brothers, there it is again, 300 times. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I mean, you've heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise an idiot. Everybody heard that phrase before, right? Well, it takes a church of godly men to, to set the example for the, for the younger people in the faith. And I'm not necessarily talking, you might have somebody that's actually older than you in age in their first birth, but they're younger than you in age in being born again. You might even have to end up helping somebody who's older than you, but you've been walking with the father longer than they have. You know dad better than they do, and so you need to help them out. See, it's talking about spiritual life. Here's a passage that we need to do at our church, Hebrews chapter 3. Let's just end with this together. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 12 with me. I mean, it talks about a dad. What dads are supposed to do, according to Deuteronomy 6, if you come back next Sunday, we'll get into this full steam. But what dads are supposed to do is they're supposed to teach their kids the law and they're supposed to do it not just in like an official Bible time, but they're supposed to do it when they lie down and when they rise up, when they go out, when they come in. Dads are just supposed to constantly be talking to their kids about God and sin and the scripture. That's just how dads are supposed to roll. That's the idea in the scripture. And it says here in Hebrews 3 that if we're supposed to be father figures to other people in the church, we're supposed to always be talking to one another and exhorting one another. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers. I'm just, just trying to point out something. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, here's something my dad did. Every day he wanted to talk to me about the Bible. It's not like he told me once and then he expected me to know it. Every day he wanted to talk to me. Because here's what my dad saw about me a little bit. Maybe this guy's not getting it 100% so he could use a little reminder. That's how we're supposed to think about each other. Like, you're here at church, you're telling me you're a Christian, we're getting to know each other in home fellowship group, and I'm starting to think about you like you're my brother. I'm starting to think about you that I, I love you, and I'm hearing your testimony of how God saved you, and I'm getting to know you, and I'm thinking, I really like this person. It's so exciting that I get to go to church with this person, that God's bringing us together. I'm starting to have family kind of feelings with people at this church. I know some of, that, some of that's the way you guys are already starting to feel about each other here. And you're supposed to have this thought in yourself, man, wouldn't it be terrible if this person that I'm getting to love, my brother or sister in Christ, wouldn't it be terrible if they stopped coming to our church? Wouldn't it be terrible if they fell away and they didn't really want to walk with the Father anymore and they went back to their old life that they told me God saved them out of? Wouldn't it be terrible if they started doing those old sins again? And I do not want to see my friend fall away. And so I exhort them every day, it says here. 
man, I'm wondering, maybe somebody in my small group, maybe they've got that evil heart of unbelief where they're going to end up going back to their sin. And so I get on the phone with them. I get face to face with them. At at least I text message them and I try to encourage them because I don't want to see them fall away from the faith. You ever talk to a parent whose child they thought was saved and has fallen away from faith in Jesus Christ? You ever had that broken-hearted conversation with mom when her precious little baby has grown up, is going off the deep end into sin, and doesn't want to talk to her anymore? Saying that's how we should think about one another. That I would be so concerned for your soul. That I would love our fellowship and our family here at church so much, I would never want to see you go back to sin. I would never want to see you fall away. So at random times throughout the week, every day, I'm hitting you up, how you doing today? Hey, here's a verse I was thinking about you today. I'm leaving, I'm calling, even if I know you're not going to answer, I'm leaving you voicemail encouragement, right? That's the idea. Are we going to be the kind of church that sees each other once a week? Are some of you going to be like the advanced placement AP Christians and go to small groups and see each other twice a week? Or are we in this every day like a family here at this church? Exhorting one another every day. I can't stop thinking about you guys. I love you. That's what we're looking for. Now, at the Blakey house, we did something, because family also has to be fun, so we had this thing called family fun night. And one night of the week, you knew that we weren't going to do anything else. Usually, actually, at our house, it was on Friday night. And somebody got to pick the meal. They got to do the entire menu, anything they wanted. They got to pick what our family was going to do. We did, we did stuff like, lame stuff like mini golf, bowling, watching movies that we'd seen ten times already. Family stuff, see? So I'm calling for our church's first family fun night. We're actually going to have it this Friday night. Now, not everybody can choose the menu, but but here's what we're going to do. We're going to have dinner together this Friday night. I mean, I'm inviting our whole church to come. Then we're going to play games, okay? And we're going to have a pie baking and eating contest. We're calling it Fall Fest, all right? I I think that we should come together as a family. In fact, if you want to bring something, bring pie. That sounds like a good gathering, right? You're like, I can't bake pie. Two words for you, Marie calendars, all right? (laughs) You can still even submit it into the pie baking contest. If nobody here can bake a pie better than Marie calendars, you win, all right? That's what we're doing, all right? We're going to have family fun night this Friday night. Everybody's invited. We're going to, in fact, pull out your, your bulletin here, and you'll see what's, what's going on. You got all the 411 right there. You got a little map of where Murdy Community Center is, where we're going to be, starting at 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock on Friday night, starting with dinner. We're going to do fun game booths for the kids. If you got kids, have them dress up. You can dress up if you want to. We got tons of candy. You guys have been so generous bringing candy. And we're going, to give a, we're going to give away candy, and we're going to have a pie baking and eating contest. It's going to be fun. And if you want this to be your church family, I hope you'll come and join us. And I hope that's the way it'll start to feel for you around here, as people welcome you and love you like we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a little card there. If you want to get there early and help set up, or you want to be a part of cooking dinner, or you want to... Uh, uh, Help us tear down when it's over. There's ways you can sign up to serve. You can put that at our Compass Connect table after the service. But we're having our first event, our first family fun night on Friday, and we would love to have you there. Let me pray, and then we'll continue some time of worship. Please pray with me. God, we thank you so much 
for uh, the vision of church as a family that we get to see so clearly from how Paul describes his relationship with these Thessalonians. God, what a, what a privilege that we could be brothers and sisters in the blood of Jesus Christ. What a privilege that we could call you our Heavenly Father, that sinners like us could become before a God like you, and instead of having a crimson stain, that we could be as white as snow before you because of the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And now we can all have that, that salvation in common. And we can look at each other and we can really love one another, passing on the way that you have loved us. And we can treat each other here as more important than ourselves. We can feel like a mother does for her newborn baby, like a father does for his kid that he wants to see stay on the right track. We can have that kind of family relationship here at this church. God, help us to get past the surface. Help no one to remain comfortable and closed off and private. God, help us to open up. Help us to reach out. Help us to extend that, that right hand of fellowship and get to know each other. Maybe become a part of a small group. Come out on Friday night ready to get outside of our comfort zone and meet people, God. God, may we, may we cry in the future as we think about the love that we have for brothers and sisters here at this church that we don't even know yet. Make us a family, God. We pray this to you, our Heavenly Father. In our brother Jesus Christ's name, amen.